God. It's good to be with God's people today, and it's always good to bring the word. It's humbling, and uh, I'm always reminded of when James talked about how teachers would be more judged from what they will teach, and so um, it's always humble and sobering to preach the word of God. And I think we need more of that in today's pulpits. <laughs> we need more sobriety, more, you know, this is his word. You know, this is his word, and it's meant to be handled carefully. And I hope that I could do that here today. And I hope that you can also listen carefully. Uh, we don't often talk about uh, the listening aspect of a sermon, how listening is just as important as preaching it. Uh, so... I hope that you're encouraged here today. We are in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, as our brother already uh, read. And so just a quick introduction and background for you uh, to let you know who uh, the Philippian church is um, and when it was written. Uh, Some say that it was written around 61 AD by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this while he was in prison in Rome. Uh, for about two years when he was there, and he was writing to the saints in Philippi. You see that in verse 1. And Philippi was one of the first places, actually, that Paul had planted a church during his second missionary journey. And so the city today is known as Kavala, Greece, which is south of Bulgaria, north above the Aegean Sea. And, uh, you know, I'm not good with maps, so if you, you know where that's at, then you're better than me. Um, But the letter was written in the latter part of his imprisonment where he sought to encourage a church that was established and also a church that was very much involved in his ministry. And you can tell that they were established because they actually had overseers and deacons in their church. You see this in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So right there you see overseers and deacons in our text. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. We know also that they were very much involved in Paul's ministry because Paul thanked God for their partnership in the gospel. Philippians 1, 3 to 5. And then he tells them in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of and the confirmation of the gospel. So Paul continued to encourage in telling them that his imprisonment didn't stop gospel work, but was in fact the very thing that advanced it. He told the saints at Philippi that even with the imperial guard, it was made known that Paul was in prison because of Christ. So Paul was actually glad that they were conversating at the fact that he was in prison because of Jesus Christ. It would beg the question, who is Jesus And so there were people there asking that question. It was a good thing to Paul that at least people in prison and even the imperial guard inquired about who Jesus Christ was. So the saints of Philippi were a congregation of prayer. We see this in verse 19. And Paul reminded them not to be frightened by anything that their opponents would bring against them. We see that in verse 28 of chapter 1. And there is something that Paul said that will point to why the Christian faith is unique. In Philippians 1, verses 29 through 30, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, 
engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul here says that belief and suffering was granted to them, meaning that God was generous when giving them belief, which we know was done by grace, but also God was generous when he gave them suffering. And some might be wondering about how it would be a gracious thing for God to give us suffering. But what we have to see here is that suffering for the Christian was granted to to us and to them for the sake of Christ. It's for the sake of Christ that we are given suffering. It was an honor to follow Christ and share in his sufferings because in doing so, the believer becomes more like Christ because of it. You know, so when you're preaching the true gospel, the true gospel does come with it much conflict. It comes with it comes with much suffering. And sadly, a lot of people don't like that part of the gospel. This church was established, supportive and prayerful. And we're told by Paul that they should not only believe in Christ, but also that they should suffer for his sake. And they would engage in the same conflict that Paul had at the time of his imprisonment. Because of this, they needed encouragement. You know, when you have the Apostle Paul telling you that the same way I'm suffering, that's the same way you're going to suffer. And, you know, if I was telling you that with a smile, you would think I'm crazy. Matter of fact, because we're American, we would actually reject that. We like being comfortable. But the gospel doesn't call you to a life of comfort. It calls you to a life of being comforted while you're suffering. And that's a different, you know, so that's, that's, God gives us peace in the midst of suffering. But he doesn't relinquish suffering from the believer. But man, he gives us that peace to go through it and to be testimonies of his glory. They needed encouragement because Paul actually said it was inevitable that they would suffer. But not only encouragement, they needed a reminder a visible reminder, something that they could see to remind them that they would, in fact, go through suffering and yet they would make it. As an established church, Paul wanted them to know that they needed to remain humble, even in the midst of suffering. They had opposition to which they needed to remember the manner of life that a believer in Christ was to live. And not only were they called not to be frightened by their opponents and by opposition, But also, they needed the reminder to be humble. And remember, they had overseers who knew the scriptures and were able to defend the faith. They had deacons who understood the mystery of the gospel. They had fellowship that prayed and were supporters of gospel work. But what they needed most was to be humble. Paul told them of their need to be humble so that their manner of life can speak of the gospel And also that their unity can be maintained. There are many good things happening at this church here in Philippi, but what could cause it to be ineffective and divided was actually pride. Sadly, that happens so much in the church today. Paul does what we all should do when encouraging and exhorting each other. He looks to Jesus Christ as the greatest example. So in our text today, I'm just going to point out three things. Uh, The first, which is humility defined. We need to understand what is humility in verses 1 and 4. And then we're going to see humility observed in 
verses 5 through 7. And then we're also going to see humility rewarded in verses 8 through 11. So humility defined, verses 1 through 4. Humility observed, verses 5 through 7. And humility rewarded, verses 8 through 11. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you will be with us. Be with me. May you be glorified. May we not be about having our ears tickled, but to have our hearts, O oh God, stirred for your glory and for the good of your people. Help me, Lord, to serve in a way that's faithful to you. May your word be handled properly, God. Help me. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your people here today that have come to hear of your word and to fellowship with one another, to be your church. So we thank you that we have the freedom here, Lord God, to worship. And even though it may come to a time where there's pressure not to worship, God, give us the courage. Give us the strength in these troubled times. Give us the peace that surpasses all understanding and may that guard our hearts and our minds. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Humility defined. We we can see Paul's heart actually in the very first verse of our text where he encourages the saints with four things that are found in Christ. Things that Paul uses to support his encouragement to them to be of one mind. And the first we see encouragement in Christ. Paul supporting his exhortation about being of the same mind tells them that there is in fact encouragement in Christ. For what we have already gathered, we can tell that this church knew that in Christ there was actually encouragement. This must have been what encouraged them to pray and support Paul. The, the very fact that they're supporting and praying for Paul, the very fact that they had elders and, and, and they had overseers and deacons is telling you something about that church. They have found great encouragement in Christ, establishing themselves in the faith, being supportive of Paul's ministry. The second thing we see is comfort from love. Paul, supporting his exhortation about being of the same mind, tells him that there is, in fact, consolation in Christ. Consolation can be found in Christ even after much disappointment and trials, which the church of Philippi must have experienced. Where there's a faithful church, there are challenges. Amen? Where there are faithful churches, there are challenges. That's just what happens. Gospel faithfulness demands opposition. And because Christ loves his church, he gives them comfort when in need of consolation, which comes from his love towards us. The third thing he points out is particip participation in the spirit. Again, Paul, supporting his exhortation about being of the same mind, tells them that there is, in fact, participation or fellowship in the spirit that can be found in Christ. In other words, there is a fellowship, there's an involvement that the Holy Spirit brings to the people of God. This is why we have gathered here today. I often wonder if we have forgotten what we are actually involved in when we gather on Sundays. How much of a miracle it is not only to be here, but to want to be here. That's a miracle. It's a miracle that you're, you being here and wanting to be here, what is that? I could be at home. I could be doing other things that I need to do. 
But somehow there's a stirring in your heart that you know you need to be here. I want to hear of the word of God. I need to be with God's people. That, in fact, is a miracle, saints. The last thing he points out is affection and sympathy. Supporting his exhortation about being of the same mind, Paul tells him that there is, in fact, an affection, a compassion, and also a sympathy, a concern, or a showing of mercy that is found only in Christ. So if there is any of these in Christ, Jesus, which there is, then be of the same mind. In Christ, we find encouragement. In Christ, we find comfort, love, fellowship, affection, and sympathy for one another. That is why we are here, saints. So if there is any of this in Christ, then be of the same mind, he says. Paul will be joyful if the saints at Philippi will be of the same mind, which doesn't mean a change in the way they're thinking. Not only that, but his concern also included their attitude towards one another. When was the last time you thought of Jesus Christ and his love and mercy where it motivated you to be encouraged, to be comforted, desiring fellowship, having an affection and sympathy towards one another here? When's the last time you thought of the Lord and it just stirred you to want to come to church, not just to, to take, but to give? Being stirred to actually serve one another. Have you strived to have the same mind? to be in one accord? Have you strived to preserve unity and fellowship in his church? Paul so desired that the saints would always be of one mind, but what hinders this is what Paul actually says in verse 3, what he warns us. Verse 3, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There are two things here that can actually help us to define humility and what it's not. First, humility is not selfish ambition. And selfish ambition here is meant to speak of a feeling of resentfulness that comes from jealousy and rivalry. Paul here is speaking of a passion for one's own success, which is driven by resenting someone else's success. And this is not someone who is humble. Someone who is humble would avoid being driven by jealousy and rivalry. I personally have seen what this looks like throughout the years in the visible church, where I've seen ministry driven by selfish ambition. It becomes a competition rather than a service to God and his people. I've seen that happen. We used to have what was called East Coast conferences, and all their church plants would come, and it was a church pageant to see which pastor had the most people had the most success, had, you know, all the things that were expected of them. And it, it was an embarrassment. Because the church is not about how many and what type of lights and everything you have in that church. That's, at the end of the day, that all fades away. But being the church, what does that mean? It simply means that we're faithful. And that faithfulness will produce fruitfulness. But people have focused on fruitfulness over faithfulness. If motivated by this, it will only foster a toxic, self-centered ministry that abuses the very people they're meant to serve. Jesus himself did not allow this to happen when he came to serve. In fact, he said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility cannot coexist with selfish ambition. This was something that Paul had pointed out in the very first chapter where he mentioned that there were even those who proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, which still happens today. He said this in chapter 1, verse 17. Paul told them to do nothing from it. Anything done from it would look opposite of what Christ has done and actually how Christ thought. So don't be driven or do nothing out of selfish ambition. The second thing that humility is not is that it is not conceited. Humility has no conceit. When Paul speaks of conceit here, he is talking about empty pride or inexcusable arrogance. To be humble, one cannot be full of pride. They cannot be conceited. They cannot have a high view of themselves. Paul is essentially telling the saints at Philippi to do nothing from an arrogant high view of self. And Jesus did not do this himself. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Sometimes I read that, I'm like, but you were good though. What was his point? He wasn't about his own glory and his humiliation. He came to serve, not to be served. Wow. Wow. Paul actually at the church of Rome was warning them also in Romans 12, 3. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So humility and conceit cannot coexist, and we are called to do nothing from conceit. Both selfish ambition and conceit have one thing in common. Self is on the throne. And with self on the throne, how could one be preoccupied with the needs of others when their greatest need is the satisfying of their own desires? Saints, just as Christ was called to humility by coming in the flesh, so are we called to humble ourselves so that we can be about the interests of others and not be about our own. The church desperately needs this today. We need selflessness in the church. We, we need to stop the consumerism in our church. Where it, we go to church and say, what can the church do for me? I mean, your church is, as we would say back in, your church is dope. Like, it's, it got nice carpet. I mean, this is amazing. The Lord has blessed you, you know? But more importantly than these things, what is the man preaching? Where's prayer? Where's fellowship? So it's amazing that York Bible Fellowship Church has both. You have an amazing building. You have amazing people. I know because I talked to him. I can see Shady from two miles away. I can see it. Pastor Wes is not that. Him and his wife have been nothing but a blessing to us in our church. You're blessed to have our brother. 
Paul tells him in verse 4, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's telling them to look out for one another first and not to be about selfish ambition and conceit. Humble yourselves to one another. Serve one another, remembering that we are servants just as Christ was for us. So in a definition that would help, it's a long one about humility. Humility is the act by which one seeks to serve the interests of others while putting aside their own ambitions and keeping a healthy estimate of themselves. Okay? Humility is the act by which one seeks to serve the interests of others while putting aside their own ambitions and keeping a healthy estimate of themselves. A a healthy estimate of oneself can help with preventing conceit, which happens often, sadly, in the visible church. Selfish ambition and conceit will prevent a church from having the same mind and being in one accord. In order for us to avoid the sin of being selfish with our ambitions and conceit or arrogance, we have to look to Jesus Christ. In order to attain being of one accord, of one mind, we all must look to Christ as our model example so that we can be his church. We should observe how Christ walked perfectly in humility and how he lived a life without sin. He is our greatest example. You want to know how to be humble? Look to Christ. Look at what he has done. And that's what we're going to do in verses 5 to 7, observing his humility. Starting in verse 5, Paul says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Paul in verse 5 tells them to have this mind. He wants them to have a mind that remembers that they are to do nothing from selfish ambition. They are to do nothing from conceit. They are to be mindful of being humble towards each other. They are to count others more significant than themselves. They are to look not to their own interests, but into the interests of others. This is the mind that Paul wants his people to have, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus thought when he was here in the incarnation. The greatest display of humility comes to us from the incarnation. So let's look at verse 6 to see what Paul points out when it comes to, when it comes to how Jesus thought and how he acted out his life with how he thought. Philippians 2.6, he says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so the first thing here Paul points out when looking to Christ is that he was in the form of God. He was in the morphe of God. Uh, The word morphe means that he was the exact, he had the exact nature and character of God internally and externally because he was in fact God. We're not just talking about a man. We're talking about the God man. We're talking about God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. When he appeared, he appeared as fully God and fully man. So how does Jesus being God in the flesh help with what Paul is telling the saints to do here in our text? Well, if there's anyone who deserved to be about their own glory, it would have been Jesus Christ. Amen? It would have been Jesus. If there was anyone who could have spoken about themselves highly without arrogance, it would have been Christ. If Jesus went about getting his own glory, he would have had the right in doing so because he was, in fact, God. He was God in the flesh. 
Jesus would have been truthful in telling them that he deserved all praise and glory from men, which would have been good for them since it was based on truth. But Jesus, who was fully and truly God, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He didn't come to be about his own glory, but he came to glorify the Father. So though Jesus was God in the flesh, he humbled himself and he always sought the glory of the Father. Though he deserved all glory, he gave all that glory up. Amazing. This is the perfect example of what it means to be humble. In his example, he leaves no room for us to be about ourselves. His example forces us to be about the interests of others, loving one another and being about each other's interests over our own. This is what Jesus himself did. This is what it means to be Christian. This is why Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and carry his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. So denying selfish ambitions and a high view of self is what it means to follow Christ. Having Jesus as our example when it comes to humility, friends, it's essential for our church essential for the Christian faith. Keeping in mind what Jesus has done is how we can walk in humility. We look to Christ. This is why an unbeliever can't actually truly be humble. When speaking about the wicked, the psalmist was right in saying in Psalm 10:4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. So apart from faith, the wicked, the unbeliever, has a condition that is bent on being proud when it comes to their standing before God. The proud do not acknowledge their need for God. They do not see God as deserving of glory. They do not see their need to humble themselves. Their blindness brings about their contradictory conclusion that there is no God, while in their hearts they know that to be true, and they suppress that with their unrighteousness. They are proud, unable to see Jesus as God. But friends, Jesus was and is God. And what he does with this truth is not brag or boast about it, but instead he humbled himself. Even though he had the right to demand what was rightfully his, he lowered himself and became a servant. He was in the form of God when he came in the flesh, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped which is the second of what we see in verse 7, where Paul points out when looking to Christ or how we are to think to be, we are to look to his example. Jesus did not view his possession of deity with the Father, a thing to be held with by force, according to the original. He didn't force it. He wasn't grabbing onto it and bragging about it. He humbled himself. What was rightfully his, he did not hold it as such. He humbled himself instead. Jesus was a man, and Jesus was counted among men, and he even became lower than the angels. He estimated himself as one that should call the Father good while taking no credit for himself, even though he had every right to demand it. It was rightfully his. Instead, he served served for his glory. Jesus did not have selfish ambition. He was not conceited. He counted the father more significant than himself, and Jesus did not look to his own interests 
as a man. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself. And this is what we should be here at the church. Jesus sought your best interest by laying down his life. We are Christian because of Christ, who was and is God, who deserved all glory and honor and bore a cross. Instead, he, you know, he bore a cross while being sinless and without Aki's, you know, he committed no sin. And yet he was treated as he committed sin. He deserved to be crowned with praise, but instead was given a crown of thorns. He deserved worship and adoration, but instead received mockery and betrayal. He could have appealed to the Father to send even 12 legions of angels, but humbled himself to die. He chose to walk in humility instead. Even when deserving all honor and glory, he instead laid his life down for us who were dead in our sins. We can observe from his life and death and resurrection that he gave himself up so that we who were sinful and lost could be forgiven and found. So my question to you today is, have you had a hard time loving one another? Has, so, has someone been difficult to love? I have a couple of those. And they remind me quickly that God loves me in spite of me. How can I withhold compassion and love from someone else? That's why he could say, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Because I love you. So I, I like uh, C.S. Lewis's analogy where he talks about, you know, not cutting the branch that you're sitting on. And it's true. How can we not love? When we've been loved in spite of us. The gospel should humble every one of us. It should destroy selfish ambition and conceit, and it should motivate us to be about unity and fellowship in the local church. Jesus emptied himself, not of his deity, as some have tried to teach, but he emptied himself of demanding what was rightfully his. He was the king of kings. He was on the throne and yet he condescended to us and became a man and served. And so it was through his humiliation that we who were poor would be given what we didn't deserve. And that's why the church of Corinth was exhorted in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus would then go before us. And when he went before the Father, when he did what he did, his humility was rewarded. And this will be my last point. In verses 8 through 11, we see what was attained through his humility. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. 
Jesus was truly man, and Paul uses the word form again here to speak of who Jesus is. First, he used the word form to speak of Jesus as God in verse 6. Second, he wrote uh, in verse 7 that Jesus would be taking a form of a servant. And then lastly, in verse 8 of what we just read, he wrote of Jesus being found in human form, meaning that Jesus was truly a man in the incarnation. And as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. This is how he would serve, by, being, by obeying the Father's will, even to the point of being crushed. He would serve so that we can attain adoption and salvation. The humility of Christ was proven when his obedience took him to that cross. His selflessness was shown by giving his life up as a ransom for many. And Jesus, who was in the highest place, lowered himself to the lowest place by dying a death of a criminal. And yet, Jesus had done nothing wrong. He committed no crime or sin, and yet he was treated as he did. And Jesus knew that in order for us who deserved the wrath of God, who could not provide what was necessary to satisfy that wrath, he instead gave himself as what was needed in order that we who were sinners would be granted faith and belief and hope and the riches of Christ to be with him forever. It's no accident that Paul pointed out Isaiah 45, 23, where God said of himself, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. God says, every knee shall bow, every tongue sh shall swear allegiance. Paul, believe it or not, you know, like it, I told Jehovah's Witnesses, I bring out this passage all the time, how we're not looking at just a man or an angel manifested in the flesh when Jesus appeared. This is the God of the heavens, the God who created us. This is God. This is not just a man. Jesus is God. And yet he left this throne for a cross. He became a man who would serve give his life through his impoverishment we have become rich by grace so saints as we humble ourselves to be obedient to him and to be about the interests of others doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit we the church can show the love of God to the world our greatest evangelistic tool is not outreaches and giving out clothing and I we do that at Christ alone fellowship we we love going out and sharing the gospel but our greatest evangelistic, too, is our love for God and for one another. That's how they're going to see Jesus at this church. Because Jesus humbled himself unto death, God the Father highly exalted him. And you know what? We who are called to follow him, we will all suffer in this life. But friends, he promised that we will also be seated with him. That's amazing. He was given the name that is above every name because he had come not in his own name, but in the name of the one who sent him. He lowered himself to the will of the Father to be crushed. And because of his perfect obedience, every person will be lowered, kneeling before him in reverence and respect. Every person. No matter who's in office today. No matter Hitler or whatever, you know, Stalin, whoever. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's almost like an automatic reaction to his greatness. 
that even just at his seeing him is going to force everyone to bow the knee. But thankfully, saints, we bow our knees, but he promised for those who believe we'll be seated with him. What a blessing. He spoke only of what the Father willed for him to speak, and because of his perfect obedience, we know that every tongue will confess him as Lord. So as he was rewarded, saints, we will also be rewarded. But our prize is not heaven. Our prize is not living forever or mansions. Our reward is to be with the Father and the Son forever. He is our reward. And I'm here to tell you as someone, I'm 45 now, I got, uh, came to Christ when I was 15. I, I still can't wait to see him, to be with him, because that's what this is about. Christianity is about Christ, not about the Christian, as I tell people. It's not about the Christian life. It's not about us. The church is not about Christians. It's about the Christ who makes us Christians. He's our reward. And so as he lowered himself and humbled himself, saints, I will call you to do the same for one another, most importantly to God. And may the world see a humble church in your Bible fellowship. May he see your light. May he be encouraged. May they be encouraged at seeing your hope and your zeal for the Lord. And so just as Christ walked, may we walk as well. And that's what I wanted to share today to remind you to be humble. Preserve unity in the church. Following Christ's example, remain humble. Serve one another with joy and life. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you and we ask that you will be with us. We thank you that you've given us joy. Even in the midst of a tumultuous, troubled world, our country right now, Lord, is so divided. Our nation is struggling. There's a joy uh, that's happening in people's lives where they're joyful over sin. There's even fear of the future, of what's going to happen next year. There's anxiety. There's confusion. Lord, what this world needs most is your church to be the church. And we cannot be your church, Lord, unless we are about you, the head of the church. And Lord God, what we pray for is that we would not be about selfish ambition or conceit, about our own plans, about our own lives, but that we would deny ourselves, serve one another, love one another, so that the world can know that we are your disciples. So, Lord, I pray that you will preserve the unity here at your Bible Fellowship Church. Give strength to the leaders in the congregation, Lord, to be about each other, most importantly about your glory. The world desperately needs the gospel, and may they see it in the way we love one another, that you will be glorified. So we thank you for Jesus that has been given to us as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world removing the wrath of God from us and giving us a hope that cannot be taken away. Lord, help us to look forward in joy that you would stir in our hearts a joy and a peace so that we could be about one another's needs. 
love you and we thank you and we ask all this in Jesus' name.